You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. The human genome is the future of medicine. What are the ethical concerns that comes with this technology and what has allowed us to use? With me today is Dr. Mark Hughes. Dr. Hughes is the Professor and Director of Molecular Medicine and Genetics at Wayne State University and the Director of the Genesis Genetics Institute. He is a pioneer in the field of pre-implantation genetics, or PGD, and we will be discussing the potential and ethical challenges that PGD is offering us as clinicians for our patients. Welcome, Dr. Hughes. Hello. So what do you think the impact of the Human Genome Project and the information that it gave us has lent to genetic medicine? Well, we used to, and still do to a large degree, diagnose disease based on signs and symptoms in our patient, but soon tools from the genome will allow us to molecularly define them. And so we'll be able to be much more exact in terms of what this disease, the molecular basis of the disease is, and understand specifically what cell aberration is occurring that causes the pathology. It's fascinating that the same gene can cause widely diverse medical anomalies that you would never have thought would be connected to one another by looking at the signs and symptoms of a patient. It's interesting because I think that the knowledge we're getting from the human genome is going to really revolutionize medicine, and I'm so glad people like yourself are foreheading some of that information. But specifically as far as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, I think the genome is really going to hopefully make your job better there. What really led you to thinking PGD was necessary? Oh, it was pretty much frustration. I would sit with couples who just delivered a baby with spinal muscular atrophy or cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy or whatever it was, and I would have to explain to them how in the world this happened because they never heard of this disease and it wasn't in their family and all of a sudden they have a child with it. And then I would have to tell them they had a 25% chance of it happening again. Or I would meet a couple who were currently pregnant and their ultrasound looked unusual and they came over to talk to us and it was obvious that the miracle that was about to happen was not as perfect as they had hoped and that there was a serious disease going on. And I thought... Maybe technology could make a diagnosis before the couple ever gets pregnant in the first place. Instead of waiting 12 to 15 weeks where the couple has high anxiety, wondering if they gave the gene to the next generation a second time, could we make the diagnosis not with CVS or amniocentesis late in the pregnancy, but could we make it before they ever got pregnant in the first place? As someone who cares for those patients, I'm really glad you've developed this technology. You know, I think when it first came out, and certainly we're seeing a little bit more information now, but I think all of the lay people and general uh, practitioners were concerned about the safety of taking a cell out of an embryo and what impact that would have on the future child. Can you maybe address the safety issue of PGD? The technology basically removes a single cell from the eight-cell embryo on the morning of day three. So this perfectly fertile couple goes to an IVF clinic as though they were infertile and produces embryos. And now we do a biopsy and take one single cell and do overnight testing on it for a disease. And we worried as well whether taking that little cell would harm the embryo in some way or create some kind of a birth defect that would be even maybe worse than what we were trying to avoid with the genetic testing. But if you think about this, first of all, animal embryos, mostly cows, sheep, and mice, have been biopsied for years and years and many thousands, and there's no evidence at all that it harms the offspring. Identical twinning occurs when Mother Nature splits the embryo in half 
we take one cell from the embryo, she takes half. And also, for many years now, well over 20 years, embryos in IVF clinics have been frozen for the future. And when you take an eight-cell embryo and you freeze it, and then you thaw it next month or next year or five years from now or whatever, every one of them has lost at least a cell, if not more than one, just in the process of the freezing and thawing. And we know there's no evidence at all that freezing embryos in IVF produces birth defects in large numbers around the world. Do you know how old the oldest child is now after that procedure has been done? The oldest one was born in 1990. And doing really well right now. Getting up there, yes, off to college. That's awesome. Who do you think we should offer PGD to? High-risk individuals who have been screened. For example, in the Jewish population, they do routine screening. Or now for the Caucasian population, we screen for cystic fibrosis when a woman says she wants to stop her um, birth control and begin her family or in the black population for sickle cell, or the Mediterraneans for thalassemia. So each ethnic group has their own high risks. So certainly those who have been screened and found to be at risk have this as an alternative to throwing the genetic dice on their own and having an amniocentesis. So that would certainly be a group. And then most of the families we see are the ones who have a child or have already lost a child to one of these dreadful genetic conditions, and they simply can't ride the emotional roller coaster of having it happen again. Mm. And I hate to ask such a crass question, but I know people are very curious. How much does PGD actually cost? Well, from the scanning of the gene to find the mutation, and oftentimes that's involving multiple family members because we use genomic markers as well as the mutation. And then the development of a private molecular probe set, a molecular spell checker for the couple, which takes several weeks. And then the actual analysis of the 10 or 12 or whatever number embryos that they generated, the entire process cost $3,750. That's a lot of work for that amount of money. (laughs) Well, we're funded by some research foundations and some gift foundations, which help offset all of that. That's very reasonable. But that is not including the IVF that the couple must go through to be able to do the PGD, right? Of course, and the expensive part of it all is IVF. But the insurance carriers are looking at this much more favorably now than they were just a few years ago. They're looking at this saying, you know, this couple has a 25 or 50 percent risk of having a dreadful disorder that's going to cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, for the life of that child. Just a few days in intensive care or the lifelong treatment of a cystic fibrosis child can be huge. And they look at it, and just from a cost perspective, they say this is rather Trump change compared to what the risks are that the insurance company's carrying, and so often they're covering it now. Remarkably common sense for them, I must say. If you're just joining the discussion, welcome to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Hughes, and we're discussing pre-implantation genetics, their ethical issues in this technology, and the effect of the human genome. Dr. Hughes, I was recently looking at some New York Times information that was talking about pre-implantation genetics, and they were talking about concerns of an embryo screening menu. It's kind of a catchphrase that was very disturbing to me, as I can imagine to you as well. And they were basically alluding to the fact that we can test for severe and untreatable genetic disorders, but we can also check for gender and skin diseases and inherited forms of deafness and other things. And do you want to maybe comment on that thought? Well, one of the issues in genetics, a huge issue in genetic ethics, has to do with what the difference is between a trait and a disease. 
They both can be caused by something as simple as a change of a single letter, a single nucleotide in the DNA from an A to a G or a T to a C. But one can cause a disease as severe as Tay-Sachs, and another one can give you an attached earlobe. And so the question that people worry about is, would these technologies be abused and used for trait selection? And I think that's an academic exercise to think about, but the truth of the matter is, no one in their right mind would go through in vitro fertilization and all of the process that that involves for something trivial. So I don't think I'm particularly worried that people will do this for silly reasons. I think we have to give our patients and our population a little more credit than that. Where it can be concerning is if you're already testing for something, like let's say the couples at risk for cystic fibrosis, or while you're at it, would you also test for gender or would you test for perfect hearing pitch or whatever else you might think of? I suppose that that's a concern that we need to pay attention to. But like all technologies in medicine, they can be abused. I mean, technology is the fuel that drives the engine of science. And science is the machine that propels medicine forward. And medicine's always driving us into the bioethical corner about what are we going to do with this or that information. But the definition of medicine is interrupting the normal course of Mother Nature Whether we give a child a vaccination or we do a heart transplant or we try to avoid a genetic disease. So I'm worried in a way that the technology could intentionally be abused in some ways, and that's why we need guidelines by our professional societies to take these technologies forward. People worried a lot about organ transplantation when Christian Barnard did the first heart transplant, and they said, oh my gosh, we're going to have body parts stores on our corners, and we're going to be reduced to our component parts, and our humanness is going to be lost by all of this transplantation business, and we should outlaw it. Well, look what we've done over the years. We've carefully moved a controversial technology from the bench to the bedside in such a way that now we sign the backs of our driver's licenses to donate our organs. And most of us would have a pang of selfishness if we didn't do such a thing. Thank you so much, Dr. Hughes, for meeting with us today and talking about the ethical issues facing the use of pre-implantation genetics and the advent of the human genome. Call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. Breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. 
The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter.